Welcome to episode 72 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Elaine Quilici, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine and your podcast host. Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rich Horgan, founder and president of Cure Rare Disease, or CRD. Rich talks about how he came to develop the first in-man CRISPR therapeutic for Duchenne muscular dystrophy in an effort to save his brother's life. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Rich. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? audience-fed creative, and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truestherumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. Today I'll be interviewing Rich Horgan, founder and president of Cure Rare Disease, or CRD. Rich is here to discuss how he sprang into action when his brother was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy by starting a nonprofit biotech to help find a cure. Thanks for joining me today, Rich. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. So how did your brother's diagnosis guide your career path? Well, the way that uh, Terry's diagnosis, my younger brother, uh, his diagnosis guided my career path was really quite fundamental. Growing up, my brother was and is uh, four years younger than I am. So I had a very front seat experience to the horrors of what Duchenne muscular dystrophy does to an individual, to a family. And I think that lesson applies broadly to, to disease as a whole, but especially rare disease where families are left with limited to no options and, and are really left out in a lot of the cases, I'd say. And so growing up, I knew I wanted to do something to help my brother. Uh, it took many years for me to sort of figure out exactly what that something became. And so it, when I was younger, all, all I tried to do is put myself in a good position to be able to do that quote unquote something. Did well in school, really tried to push myself the extra mile and everything. And by the time I got to grad school, to Harvard Business School, the opportunity presented itself where now I had a platform where I could go and speak to scientists across the U.S. and clinicians to really understand what's going on. And that's where I started. I started first in understanding what's going on within the current development paradigm and how was it going to help my brother. And what I found was very startling. In fact, there was nothing that was going to help my brother. There was no medicine. There was no therapeutic. There was nothing in the development pipeline that was going to help Terry in time. And so after this revelation, I started to look for, for anything, really. How can, we, how can we develop something? How can we fight back? And I was very fortunate because I went to a great university where this sort of thinking outside the box was encouraged. And so after graduating from HBS, I became a Blavatnik Fellow in Life Science or Entrepreneurship. And really that, that was an opportunity that allowed me to springboard into what became Cure Air Disease. And so uh, one of my mentors at the time was Dr. Tim Yu at Boston Children's Hospital, who I had the chance to meet through a professor at MIT, where I took a class in my last year at HBS. And Dr. Yu was working on something incredible at the time. He was working on what would become the world's first customized therapeutic for a little girl with Batten's disease. And now that story is quite well known and, and Tim continues to move on doing great work. But the lesson that I took from there is, okay, so there is something we can do here. 
we can do something relatively unconventional, something relatively new, but that's okay because at least it's a shot on goal. And we started very small. We started first by just organizing a small team, small team of Terry's clinician for over 15 years, Dr. Brenda Wong, one of the top neuro neurologists in the Duchenne field clinician, as well as some luminaries in the field with Dr. Luke Kunkel and, and, and others to just understand what could we do. And we started first with a muscle biopsy. That muscle biopsy was used to really characterize and inform what was going on with Terry on a genetic level, on a molecular level, and what could we do? Uh, not necessarily wed to any one technology, but it started us as, as really a springboard to leap into developing what would become a full-blown uh, CRISPR program. You know, people often talk about the patient journey in pharma. How has living the patient journey with your brother affected your work? Yeah, so li living the patient journey is, is a completely different experience than, you, you know, that you sort of hear about, you know, if you're a patient advocate or if you work in the industry, right? The very idea that you can choose to learn about the patient experience and then sort of go home and, and continue on with your job or your daily life is by definition just a blockade that will never allow one to really fully understand what the patient experience is like unless you live it, right? This is the type of experience that you know, is, is not a great one, right? This is, is a diagnosis like many rare diseases, which is fatal. And we're faced with this sort of limited number of options, right? Develop something ourselves or wait for the natural history to kind of take its effect. And so the patient experience, it, it really takes you on what I call the roller coaster of emotions, especially after I started cure rare disease. This idea that, you know, you're, you're sort of waiting for the next shoe to drop until you start to do something, take action and try to try to develop something that may help, in my case, Terry and many others. But, but the patient experience is really challenging because oftentimes I feel like patients are sort of seen in terms of a hierarchy. Patients, I feel like under the current status quo are seen as a bit below where a researcher or a clinician would be in the hierarchy. But I, I really like to challenge that. And that's a part of what we're trying to do at Cure Disease is challenge the idea that this hierarchical structure is what should be the status quo, but instead it should be sort of like a pie, right? Cut into even slices with each slice representing the patient, the researcher, the clinician, because each individual brings a really valuable set of experiences and insights to the table. One can't operate on its own without the other. I, I think as I've gone through this journey, that's something I've really tried to learn and, and internalize and also build into cure disease is how do we put the patient and the patient family at the foremost? Because ultimately they are the ones with the most to lose here. Dollars and cents are replaceable, but at the end of the day, human life just isn't. And so how do we treat the patient as an equal and how do we treat the patient and involve the patient in this drug development process so that we can really strive towards the greatest outcome possible? And I, and I strongly believe that that includes the patient at the forefront rather than you know, further down the hierarchy. Could you briefly describe your drug development model? Sure, happy to. So like I mentioned, we, we, we tried to do something relatively unconventional at cure disease. Current drug development, you know, as, as most people are probably aware, really relies or tries to rely on significant volumes of patients, right? If we look at drug development as sort of a, a manufacturing type of exercise, where there's a huge amount of fixed cost that goes up front, then, you know, we want as many sort of buyers or patients as possible to get the drug at the end of the day to spread those fixed costs as widely as possible. But what we're trying to do is actually literally just the opposite. For rare diseases, of which there's over 7,000, and, and the statistic is that only 5% have effective treatments or cures, there's a significant number of patients who will sort of, and diseases, who will never sort of meet that minimum threshold for disease prevalence to incentivize the pharmacoeconomics to develop a drug for their condition, right? 
And so it, it's, it's my strong belief that, you know, a patient and a patient family shouldn't be forgotten simply because they had the bad luck enough to be born with a rare disease. What we're doing is, is we're doing uh, what I like to call truly patient-centered drug development. And what this means and, and how this works is that we first start by characterizing the patient. So in order to develop something tailor-made, which is what we're doing, developing tailor-made therapeutics or customized therapeutics, we really need to understand um, upfront what's the target we're trying to hit. And so by doing whole genome sequencing and, and establishing a patient cell line, what we do in the first step of our process, we really can use that opportunity to clearly define the target, really understand what are we trying to develop a construct to treat? What are the breakpoints? What is the mutation? You know, all of these sorts of technical questions that really inform where we're going. And once that upfront investment is made in terms of characterizing the patient on a genetic and molecular basis, then we move on to developing a therapeutic construct. And the way that the system works is that it's a collaboration. So we've got uh, over seven different collaborators at this point, both academics and industry groups that play a different role at each different part of this journey. And so generally what we do is whole genome sequencing and that sort of step one, that patient characterization part is done in, in combination with our team at UMass and Yale, where they'll consent them into our research study and then they'll get serum drawn if need be. And that allows us to do the whole genome sequencing and really start the process. And once this process is started, then down the line, these therapeutic constructs are, are generated by uh, right now our team at Yale for our Duchenne muscular dystrophy program. And then of course they're tested in vitro on the patient's own cell line. And the belief is, is that if we can see improvement in a patient cell line, then that increases our chances that we'll be able to see good therapeutic benefit once we get in the patient, right? If we test this on the patient's cells, it increases our confidence if it works, that it'll work once we get in the patient. And then from there, then we move into a, a lean drug development program. So taking this through dosing study, meeting with the FDA for pre-IND meeting, which we just completed for, for my brother, our first drug. And then um, ultimately doing our final and pivotal study combination of a safety and efficacy study before submitting our IND to the FDA for approval to dose. Now, what we're doing is a bit different, right? We're trying to develop drugs for what's called N of one or N of a few rather than huge populations. And so the, the requirements and the demands on developing uh, drugs for patients who are incredibly, incredibly high need patients in terms of how their disease is progressing forces us as a whole, uh, as us, our collaborators, as us cure disease, as us, the FDA, to be able to move quickly because this patient in, in most cases, my brother's own situation included, time is our greatest enemy here, right? We, we don't have years and years and years and years to develop something that is run through a full gambit of tests, some of which may, uh, may not really be predictive or may not be sort of conducive, but maybe just what is, you know, the quote unquote status quo is used to. And so a lot of the conversation with the FDA is, you know, what do you buy this argument? Do you agree with our proposed preclinical plan, which is very, very straight and to the point. And so by, by sort of creating a lean preclinical plan, getting it through development in collaboration with our manufacturers, our clinicians, our regulatory folks, our preclinical and discovery team, all at the same table, all moving in the same direction, we can save a lot of time and, and we can advance much quicker that way and, and ultimately get to the patient who, at least for cure disease, is truly the bottom line of our, of our mission. Do you think this model could help patients in other areas who are also battling against time? Absolutely. That, that's one of the big, big reasons why we are starting to scale up what we're doing at Cure Disease. 
we've gone from an individual drug development program, so one in which we're developing for my brother, to about a year ago, opening that up to a smaller cohort of, of, of Duchenne patients. And since then, we've opened it up a little further to where, where we're now working on 10 or so Duchenne patients. Now, the question is, can we take this infrastructure, which has been established for Terry, apply it to these other Duchenne patients, which we believe the answer is, and we're realizing that answer now is yes. But also, can we take this same model and sort of switch out the discovery stage researcher for a different researcher working on a different indication and then run that through the same infrastructure that we've developed, right? The same preclinical, the same regulatory strategy, or as much as possible. Earlier in 2020, we started working on a neurodegenerative program where we're doing exactly that, right? You know, we're, we're working with a, uh, a PI um, at a different university and a different indication, but running it through that same, that same model. And so far, although we're quite early, so I don't, I don't want to jinx myself, so far we are seeing good results and we're seeing that it appears that this model can be applied to multiple diseases that aren't directly related. So a neuromuscular versus a neurodegenerative disease. The jury's still out ultimately, but, but so far the early indication does seem that this model can be applied to other diseases and, and other processes. What has it been like to advance your research during COVID as far as managing collaborations and regulatory issues? Oh, absolutely. So uh, this this whole this whole idea of drug development to me was was quite a challenge to begin with. I'll be honest. But before COVID started, my 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 background is quite uh, different from the average drug development expert, where where I really come from an economics uh, and and business background. But building a team of scientists, really the best in their field, around us so that we we can advance quickly. But COVID's brought a whole slew of different challenges, right? So we're given that we're a nonprofit, we do a lot of fundraising through in person events. Typically, we'll have a golf tournament, a gala, and a number of other type of in-person fundraisers. Obviously, with COVID, that's become a much bigger challenge to where we, we've had to cancel most of these in-person events that were just, you know, not going to be safe enough to hold. At the beginning, it was a bit of a challenge to kind of figure out, okay, how do we, you know, how do we raise money in light of all this uh, lack of in-person event? And so we hold on strategies of, of moving into virtual fundraising through things like esports. if you're familiar. I, I kind of laugh a little bit because of the idea of drug development sort of meeting gaming for those two instances. Um, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's really challenged us to go into places where we wouldn't have thought before, you know, hosting Fortnite charity tournaments, partnering with some, some big esports endemic brands to, to raise awareness and raise money. And, you know, it's ironic at the end of the day that um, gaming for rare disease patients, and it was sort of sit, staring me in, in, in the face the whole time, is, is an obvious on-brand thing. Because, you know, what you get is you, you, you have people like my brother who, you know, can't necessarily go outside and play basketball, but man, can they play video games like it's no tomorrow. And, and this is something where we see esports as a great equalizer for folks like Terry who are impacted by rare disease, right? We can have folks who can't necessarily go outside and play, but who, who can compete with the best and the most able-bodied across, across the game controller. And so we've gotten great feedback from the families, from the community, that this is such an inclusive endeavor that, that they really love it. And so, you know, COVID's forced us to reinvent um, in terms of fundraising and in terms of the research side of things. Uh, at the very beginning, when it broke out, it was sort of this game of, of hot potato of, okay, we have to move these experiments to this facility because this facility is exempt. Whereas, you know, some of the academic institutions shuttered for a while because of COVID. But, but at this point, you know, I feel like we have a, a relatively good handle on it. I think drug development as a whole has kind of figured out, okay, how do we coexist with this virus until, until we see good results from a vaccine, which fortunately, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen, seen good signs of that. So hopefully life can, 
get back to whatever the new normal may be sooner rather than later. But you know, this, this idea of being able to, to move quickly, nimbly, and, and effectively in light of a, a crisis that nobody has had experience with in 100 years what was certainly a challenge at, at the beginning. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where things go. Hopefully cases start decreasing as time goes on so that we can start to drive towards, towards returning to normal. That's a really interesting and innovative way to think. So why did you choose to set up CRD as a nonprofit? And maybe you can talk about some of the benefits and drawbacks of operating as a nonprofit in biopharma. Absolutely. So if you'd asked me this question a a year ago, I think I would have had a totally different answer, but kind of where we sit from now with having a a drug nearing the clinic in the next few months and several others entering preclinical development and earlier drugs being just ideated. the, The idea that we can go with a nonprofit is is it really gives us the freedom and the flexibility to be able to take the bets that we want to take that are ultimately bets that we believe are in the patient's best interest. I think the challenge with the traditional for-profit model of drug development, and I'm not saying that it's not necessary, I'm saying that what we're doing is, is a complement to that. It's filling in the blanks where patients are still lacking, even with for-profit drug development. But I, th- I think some of the challenges that come along with that is that you have to be laser focused on delivering the next value inflection point. And that next value inflection point for a for-profit model may be radically different for the value inflection point of, of a nonprofit program. And what I mean by that is that an individual like my brother, who's you know 25, which is, which is an older case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, non-ambulatory, Terry, at least in the traditional model of drug development, is not a patient that industry would ever pick up. Industry oftentimes wants to dose and experiment and treat patients who are quite young before they've sort of gone through significant symptoms and and loss of function of a disease, because then you can kind of put it on a map and say, okay, well, this is the direction they should have gone based on natural history. And with our drug, okay, you know, we've bought X amount of years, but our idea is that we're trying to help the individual. I think this, this concept of technology over patient is one that's very, very prevalent in for-profit drug development. Whereas what we're trying to do is actually say, okay, here's the patient. Now, what do we have to use to help the patient? putting the patient above the technology. And I think that that is a sort of a mental nuance, but I think when you realize it in practice, it's actually fundamentally different. Because for instance, patient that we've since added on, a family from Arizona, see now they have a, a young son who is affected by, by Duchenne. And that patient has extremely, extremely high levels of neutralizing antibodies. And so again, that, that's an individual, this, this little boy is an individual who would be precluded from the traditional model because he's looked at as, you know, maybe too challenging, but, but that's just not good enough because that's how we end up forgetting a number of patients, a number of individuals who sort of have an extra wrinkle of a disease challenge for lack of a better term. And so, you know, the way that we look at it is, okay, we, we take the patient as is now, what do we need to do? And what do we need to put in place to help this individual, this uh, young, young boy from Arizona that I mentioned now what he's enabled is us to look at an entirely new way of delivering gene therapies or, or getting around this challenge of neutralizing antibodies. And what, what benefits this young man, this young boy will then benefit other patients who fall into the same category. And so we're helping to provide a solution with an individual as the catalyst that will benefit many others as a result, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Rich. It's been really enlightening learning about your family's journey and what you're doing to help your brother and others affected by DMD. Thank you so much for having me. And and if folks would like to learn more, you know, I encourage them to to reach out. Our website's curerarediseases.org. And on social media, our handles are all at curerarediseases. So it really does take a village. And and I hope folks will, uh, I hope folks will tune in. 
you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At TrueSterum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. TrueSterum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at TrueSterumNTWK.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma execs. My name is Rich Horgan, and I'm the founder of Cure Rare Disease. And the best business advice that I've ever heard is really understand the incentives of those around you and understand how those incentives can impact the direction that you and your organization are trying to go. Everyone operates to the different tune of a different drum. And it's important to understand how that impacts your program moving forward. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's PharmaExec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmaExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at PharmaExec.com, on Twitter at PharmaExec, on Instagram at PharmaExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of PharmaExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com. 